So we begin here in verse 5 in this class, and we've just seen how God, but God, rich in mercy, full of love, has loved us in verse 4. And we move into verse 5, it says, And even when he, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And yet, or even likewise, when we were spiritually dead, destitute of life that would recognise or be devoted to God, totally inactive in doing what was right in his eyes, God chose us. Touched our hearts, our eyes, brought us to life, making our spirit come alive forevermore to be heirs with the Son. This is the second time Paul has repeated the phrase, repeated the phrase, dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, John Trapp, famous author, had said the reason for this was Paul repeats himself here again. Now this happens actually a couple of times in this opening 10 verses, but he repeats himself again twice because we find this doctrine so difficult to believe that we are apt to think better of ourselves and that there is cause for and can hardly be persuaded that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and lie rotting and stinking in the graves of corruption, much worse than Lazarus did after he'd lain four days. It's natural for us to think better of ourselves. Well, wasn't it that bad? It's so easy for us to think like that. Well, I, was, I wasn't that bad, actually. No, you were completely dead in trespasses and sin, all of which was an abomination to the Lord. So think about that when it comes to why Paul's repeating himself. Sometimes if you find and you're reading the Bible and there's something repeating itself, it's normally important. Just like it is when uh, we hear the angels crying, holy is the Lord. But he says, holy, holy is the Lord. And then he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The holiness of God being emphasised is so powerful, so magnificent, so deep, so terrifying, so awesome, so glorious. He has to say it three times. So when this Bible repeats itself, look a bit deeper. Let me... Um, God, as we saw, we talked about that picture of man drowning and God picking him up from the ocean floor. He has saved us, quickened us together, as we see in Colossians, quickened us together as one with Christ. And because of that grace, we've been saved. Not that we will be saved. We are saved. We're saved now. And we have that future inheritance. And the work that God continues to do in us what it says we're continually being saved is, is a continuation of the work of grace within us. But you are saved. Now he's redeeming us and sanctifying and washing our minds by the, by the washing of the word. That word grace in the Bible, I've given you as well so, uh, a, a sheet in there. There'll be a sheet in there about what grace is in the Bible. Grace is uh, grace comes from God is the God of all grace. Um, God is the giver of it. He is the throne of grace. We have the Holy Spirit of grace. The grace was upon Christ and Christ spoke with grace. Christ was full of grace. Grace came by Christ, given by Christ, foretold by the prophets. 
Grace is described as great, sovereign, rich, exceeding, all-sufficient and all-abundant and glorious. Grace is the source of our calling, our election, the call of God, justification. It's the source of faith. It's the source of forgiveness of sins. It's the source of salvation. It's the source of consolation. It's the source of hope. Grace was necessary for the service of God. Grace, work, God's work is completed in the saints by grace. The success and completion of the work of God is to be in grace. We inherit the promises of God by grace. Justification by grace opposed to that of works. Grace is found in the saints. We are heirs of it. We are under it. We receive it. We are what we are by it. We abound in the gifts of it. We should be established in it. We should be strong in it. We should grow in it. And we should speak with it to one another. He raised us up in verse 6, it says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. We saw that at the end of chapter 1, how Christ was raised up to be with the Father and seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God. We then, being saved, are given the beautiful promise that we even now are raised up together with Christ. From a mortal death to a blessed life dedicated to the service of God. Like Christ rose from the dead, so now we also rise with him to life. The phrase literally means to be raised from the dead because of the grounds of our new Christian life in his resurrection. Colossians 3.1 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek the spiritual things of God, not the earthly possessions of the world. Seek that which is above. Seated us means to sit down together with him. So we have been sat down together with him in a spiritual sense. Christ seated at the right hand of the Father is the representation of authority and power. Who is ever interceding for us? And he is spiritually in this present world of darkness given us authority and power. Where he is seated in the heavens, we are seated with the blessing of his position. Power and authority to preach the gospel, the power of God to salvation, to pray for the sick, to cast out demons. It is the cross over here of that which is spiritual, again impacting that which is physical. Some people say, well, I don't believe in demons. Wow. They are real. Somebody once said, an old preacher once said, I don't, you know, some people believe there's a devil in every bush. And he said, I don't believe that. I believe there's five. And sometimes even in the church, the devil is at work. And we would say, how can he be at work? Because there is many people come to church who are unsaved. And he's at work in the sons of disobedience, isn't he? So who are we pandering to when we come to church? The unbeliever 
or the saints of God who were called to encourage and uplift. We have to be careful and even in the church to protect in prayer, to cover in prayer. If you look around the church right now and you look around and say, who's missing? Is it because the enemy's been at work? Pulling them away, weakening their faith, dampening their hope in Christ? Christ is in a position of authority and we have the authority to overcome in him. We're reminded here that although we dwell now on earth, our citizenship is with him in heaven. We are lifted from the deepest hell to heaven itself. Philippians 3.20 says this, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We now no longer live under the limits imposed by the world. Nor do we conform to the way of the world. Romans 12.2 says this. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed. Not conformed. Transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by detesting you may discern what is the will of God. What is good. What is acceptable. And what is perfect. When we allow our minds to be renewed and transformed by the renewing of our mind, then we're able to discern the things of God, the deep things of God. We understand more of his will. We understand what is good in his eyes, what's acceptable. And we understand that which is perfect. You know, we have this, I call them a... a, I was talking actually to your daughter today and I was saying we have our salvation stations. We've got regeneration, the work of the Spirit before it. We've got then our salvation. We've got then our justification. We're made just as if we'd never sinned. Right? We then have this wonderful process called sanctification, which is the continual washing of our minds and our thoughts from the way that we're, that we're learning to be new. That's why it's so important we read the word and we allow the Holy Spirit and we pray to get closer to God, the less we'll be like the world. The more we know about God, the less we'll know about the world. He'll renew our minds. And we have to allow God to renew our minds. That's sanctification. The last station is glorification. When we get to meet him in the air, when we die and we go to heaven. So when you think of those beautiful stations of your process of salvation to the completeness of it to be presented before the Father what? Holy and blameless remember? that's what he's trying to do is sanctify you now get you ready so you'll be presented holy and blameless before him in love verse 7 goes on to say this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. At present with us, we've been given, as we saw in chapter 1, every spiritual blessing, many which we have right now that aid us to live in our lives on earth. That brings us a future hope that gives us security. It consoles us in our time of loss. That word's an interesting thought, that grace is actually a consolation for us. Here's why. In fact, one of the greatest consolations grace given us is the comfort at that very moment we see ourselves as filthy, wretched sinners before a most holy God. 
that point of salvation, whilst a joyful celebration, is in fact a time of mourning of the old man. Oh no, what was I? What have I done, Lord? But you have saved me. So it's joyous, but there is a time where we need that consoling, that comfort of the Spirit of God, that comfort of grace, to know that even although I did, I mourn. Sometimes we look back and say, oh, I can't believe I did that. Or sometimes we look back and say, oh, I remember... I remember, you know, it's like that person who used to see it and he used to see it in the old days where, oh, we're going to pray and cast out the spirit of nicotine out of this person and whatever. And anybody that wants that deliverance, come forward right now and bring your cigarettes with you. And they would all take their cigarettes and they would all march to the front and throw them in the stage and there'd be this big mountain of fags on the stage and I was just like, okay, you know, wow, that's incredible. And they would cast out the so-called spirit of nicotine that everybody apparently had and then they would walk right back out the door and go and buy a packet of 20 club king size and smoke them all. Number one, is there really a spirit called nicotine? Number two, it's because they were unredeemed. They didn't know any better. They had this idea that, oh, this sounds good, this guy's going to set me free smoking. No, they couldn't let go of their past life. They couldn't let go of that which they were holding on to that was dear. Some people, but I believe in Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider, the Lord my supplier, it says. Some people live by Jehovah Jireh for a check they get from the government. Because even although they're the saved, they're the redeemed of the Lord, they're Christians, they keep wanting to hold on to this past life where they get everything given to them. They're afraid to let go of certain things. When you come to the moment of letting it go through your process of sanctification, you need consoled. Because it's like, this is hard, Lord. I'm struggling to let this old life go. I'm struggling to let some things go. So his grace is the promise of consolation. His Holy Spirit comforts us and guides us through the process. So when you're facing something, we all are, every one of us in this room and every Christian I know is facing something right now that they have to deal with. Some either sin, some stuff eh, we heard this morning of someone who, you know, got through a life of abuse. Things that have been said over them and, and they, it takes a while to deal with these things and we, we, we need comforted. Grace does that. Grace comforts. And he goes on to say that in verse, um, verse 8 he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. If, as if we needed any more evidence to know that it's not our own doing. It just re-says it again. The grace of God to save us, even giving us the faith to believe, is not of man's doing, but the divine being bestowing upon us the gift, the spiritual blessing of our salvation. Christ came, died on the cross for us to make a way for us to fellowship with God. That's grace. Man who is dead spiritually is awakened by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit of God to see his utter sinfulness 
And that through Christ we have the forgiveness of our sins, which we cannot help but respond by believing. That's faith. God pours out grace. Do you know our only part of salvation? Two hands stuck out. Receiving it. That's your part. That's faith. You just, you do, you do anything to do to get saved. You just receive it. It's bestowed upon you. That's faith. The receiving of it. Not the believing in it. The receiving of it. Get your head around that one. Man completely is incapable of saving himself. Is now because of the work of salvation. The work of grace and mercy. Now saved for eternity. Not because man did, had or ever has had anything that could dare change the word of God, the word of God, the will of God, sorry. So we have grace, we have the gift, and now we, we have the faith, and now we have the gift, the gift of salvation. Even though we were dead in our trespassing, he saved us. Let me challenge you in your understanding of the word faith and what it is here in this verse that may contradict what you may believe about faith and the subject of faith. Faith is best described as this. Turning to God with a sense of need and weakness and emptiness and a willingness to receive what he offers. Now you may have been taught that faith is a, I'm going to, I like that chair and I'm going to claim that chair and that chair is going to be mine and that's my chair and I believe Lord you're going to give me that chair and I'm just going to walk the floor until that chair becomes mine. Even although that chair might belong to somebody else. But you're going to claim it, or that, that, that car's mine, you know, and I'm going to claim that car, and I'm going to walk and believe for it, or that man's mine, or that woman's mine, or that whatever's it, you know. That's called name it and claim it, blab it and grab it theology. It's so unbiblical. It's so unbiblical, it's funny at times. The faith that we have is where we turn to God with a sense of need. And weakness and emptiness. Pouring ourselves out, Lord, I'm empty. And a willingness just to receive what he has given. To receive the Lord himself. John 1.12 says this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the rights to become the children of God. They just received. Believed. And they got the promise of life. The entire working of this grace is the gift of God. And it goes on to say, and I love this verse, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not, as, not of yourself, uh, it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And he goes into verse 9 and he says this, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. The day we think of our salvation as something we did is the moment we displace the sovereignty of the Almighty God and enter into a vain attempt at making man more sovereign than God himself. Boast not of your own works, or deeds boast like Paul says. He boasts, I boast in the Lord. Let me read you an explanation of what it means here in this passage in the Greek, what it means biblically to boast. The phrase boast in the Lord is found in 1 Corinthians 1.31 where Paul quotes Jeremiah 9.24 and he says, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It may seem strange to think of boasting as a good thing, after all, it's like that word, I um, can't remember the word, it's zealot. Kevin and I love that word, don't we? Zealous for God. 
I want to be zealous for God. But some people think a zealot is something bad. But I want to be zealous for God. Just like I want to boast in the Lord. Boasting in the right context is a good thing. Boasting is of good. After all, the word boast means to puff oneself up in speech. And pride is condemned in scriptures. Proverbs 11, 2 tells us that. Paul is obviously not talking about puffing himself up. He's not talking about, you know, pride, about sinful boasting. Right? He never condones bravado. Some preachers have twisted the meaning of the phrase boast in the Lord to support a misleading message. The phrase is commonly heard today in that type of what we just talked about, that type of gospel where we name it and we claim it and we believe that type of faith movement. Often it's quoted from Psalm 34.2 in the King James Version where he says, My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. And it's used in the context of boasting about worldly possessions or speaking, speaking miracles into existence. The idea is that if you have a material need, then you should boast that you already have that need. And it's already been met. Such boasting is proof of faith, they would say. And that faith will glorify God. And as your word of confession speaks a blessing into existence. This is not what what Apostle Paul or David in the Psalms meant at all. Paul's statement about boasting in the Lord has nothing to do with worldly possessions or with altering reality. The context concerns God's ability to glorify himself even in our weakness. When called to salvation, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one would boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-30. What good may come from our ministry. We have no reason to boast. Because humanly speaking we are weak, foolish, lowly and despised. All the glory goes to God alone. So true boasting in the Lord is actually boasting of the Lord. Boasting of his great power and his attributes. Boasting of what he's done for us. Of what he is still doing in us today. And what he has promised to do. Jeremiah 9, 23-24 says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We finish in verse 10. Verse 10 goes on to say, so we've looked at this boasting, we boast not in ourselves. And he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are, not we will be, but we are a present blessing. We are his, we are his creation, for we are his creation in Christ Jesus, created new in Christ because of Christ, for Christ and through Christ. He is the great architect of our design, the great potter and artist, and we are simply the canvas and clay. We were created to be in Christ, created for his good will and his good pleasure. Created new. We are called new creations in Christ Jesus. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, old things have become new. Notice he doesn't say he calls you. Notice this, the phrase he uses here, you're a new creation. He doesn't call you a renewed creation. He didn't take something that was old, dress it up nice, fix it together and present that to you and make you that he completely made that which was dead new that means a new thing you ready for this a new thing has no past to be condemned for stop looking at your past that was the dead person when someone brings up my past I say I have no idea who you're talking about they were buried a long time ago they're in the ground. They're gone forever. Because I'm a new person. And my new person that God has made me, the new spiritual person that I am now, has no past. Because as far as the east is from the west, I don't know if my hands are in the right direction there, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. God has blotted them out. He remembers none of my sins. He doesn't sit up there as some may do here on the earth and keep an account of all the wrongs, even the time and date that we said what was wrong. And they keep an account and they bring it up in a future argument or a future thought or a future thing. Remember back when that person, I can't believe I still remember that when they did that to me. Who are we, oh man, to bring up the past? when we are completely trying to bring up something that was in a dead person. We are new creations. Not old together, but brand, shiny new creations. We're created, why? For his good will and pleasure. Good will and pleasure. We are called new creations in Christ. We had a past life, a path of eternal destruction, but now it's over. We are now given new life Something to hope for. Christ seated in heavenly places with Christ. Not only now new creations, but we are to put on the new self. We are to continually remind ourselves of this. This is a part of the sanctification process. It's to constantly put on the new self. Don't let it, don't, you know, I always think about the armour of God when it talks about, you know, putting the, the, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. Why do we take it off? So we must put on these things and put on this and put on that. But we keep taking it off. Right? It's something we must continually put on is that you're a new, your new self. You need to continually retrain your brain to say that the old is gone, the new has begun. Um, you know, I, I can't, I long for that day. I love that passage where it says, in the Bible it says, when we meet him, we will know him. Yeah. And I was sharing with someone this morning, when we meet God, the word know, and it means that we will begin 
knowledge of. When you meet him, it's when you begin to have knowledge of who he actually is. Only then, here on the earth, we think we know a lot about God. You might be the greatest theologian on the planet. And only then, when you see him, will you begin to know him. We'll all be in a level playing field. Ephesians 4.24 says, And put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are once again reminded by Paul that our citizenship is in heaven was as a result of the plan of God that we saw in chapter 1. Set in place before the foundations of the world. You're seated in heaven beside Christ was the plan of God to take sinners and make them saints. And he goes on in this verse, and we'll end with this, for he says, For we are his workmanship, the creation of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. It is for good works through being in Christ that we are to walk now and forever. Never cease doing good works. Never cease blessing others. Never cease displaying kindness. Never cease being generous. Never cease being hospitable. I always want to spit when I say that. Never cease offering comfort to those who mourn. Never cease doing good. Notice it's not just saying do one good deed often. It's saying do good works, plural. Do many good works. We were not saved by good works. We were saved and now because we are, we can do good works that bring glory to God. In the everyday world, the works of the believer is a response by those who know they are saved by grace and with joy they offer themselves to God's service. These works and deeds will include things like worship, proclaiming the gospel, acts of kindness, acts of love and compassion, showing mercy, standing up for justice. That's a good deed. They will show it in their own lives by the way they live their lives. They will literally walk in them, it says, that we should walk in those good deeds. It's a continual thing. Titus 2.14 says this, Who gave himself for us, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, there's a cleansing going on here, purify himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Are we just tapering along with good works? Or are we going to be like these guys that are zealous? I want to be zealous for good works. Lord, give me the, the I, I want more money, Lord. Why? Not so I can have a great bank account, but so that I can do more good works or give it away. Lord, I want, you know, I want to be stronger so that I can go and help that guy carry that wardrobe up the stairs and show kindness. Right? Lord, give me the heart and compassion for this person that's just lost someone that I can go and partner with them and show them comfort and mourn with them. Finish with this verse, Colossians 2.10. So as to walk. Why? He has called us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There lies a mystery of God that in bearing fruit, as we are fruitfully doing good works and they're bearing fruit, there is an increased knowledge of God. There's a mystery. By doing good deeds, I increase in knowledge. Yeah. Bearing fruit in every good work and we're increasing in the knowledge of God. What a wonderful thought. So let us think now no longer as sinners, no longer back in the past, but God has richly blessed us and turned it all around so that we can walk as saints with him in a high and lofty position seated with Christ where our thoughts are above and not here below but that we would why display the new creation that he has given us by offering good works by now we have the ability and the power and the spirit of God with us when we do those good works and we'll bear fruit and we'll grow in knowledge of understanding of who God is. Amen.